Hello and welcome to this College of Optometrists podcast. I'm Martin Cordner, the Head of Research at the College. I'm Daniel Hardman-McCartney, one of the clinical advisors at the College of Optometrists. So we are about to catch up with a researcher called Deanna Taylor, who uh, did her PhD at the City University of London uh, on visual disability in dry age-related macular degeneration. So we'll talk to her about all sorts of things, including the lower focus on dry AMD amongst published studies, its impact on real-world activities, and whether the existing images that represent what AMD looks like for the patient are up to scratch. In practice, I often find it's quite difficult to um, to actually really explain very well what people might experience. A relative is asking about what someone might be seeing when they're affected by AMD. It's a really difficult thing to describe. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Diana about this and see if there's any pearls or wisdom or nuggets that I can use in practice to make that easier. Absolutely. Uh, let's speak to Diana. Diana, hello. Hello. So thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, first of all, obviously, this was your PhD work. So. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what it was like undertaking a PhD? Was it what you imagined it would be? I would say it was probably nothing like I imagined it would be, <laughs> but um, but I think in a good way. Overall, I really enjoyed the experience of doing my PhD. I found it challenging and um, stimulating, and I really enjoyed the kind of sense of kind of achievement every time you you know you reach a milestone you publish a paper you finish a kind of part of your research um, and you're always working towards something else and I find that really really enjoyable and the nature of the PhD that I did meant that I was constantly sort of talking to people meeting new people so although I was kind of taking a step back from being in you know the testing room I didn't lose that kind of element, sort of face to face with patients that um, that I think I was maybe concerned that I um, that I might have done. There's definitely sort of, you know, very stressful times and not fun times, but as long as you sort of appreciate that, you know, they will pass, then I think you sort of you'll get through them. So, how did you get into optometry initially? I've worn glasses since I was about eleven or twelve. And um, from that age, I was going sort of very regularly to my optometrist. And every time I went, I was sort of really interested, always asked loads of questions. Um, I hadn't started thinking about, at that point, what I wanted to do with my life. But then gradually, as I got older and did start to think about what I wanted to do with my life, then I kind of realised that that was something that I'd always been interested in, really. And it kind of flowed from there. I arranged work experience with my optometrist and in sort of a hospital optometry setting at the time as well. I really, really enjoyed it. I think that's interesting. I think a lot of people probably do that. And I wonder how it compares to things like GPs. I wonder if people go to a doctor's appointment and do that. But it seems to me with optometry, you know, uh, optometrist practice, there's a lot of kit and stuff. And I wonder if a lot of children who are interested go in there and think, oh, what's that for? And what does that do? That sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. And on the other side of things, I find a lot of my sort of peers that studied optometry university that didn't have anything wrong with their eyes had everything wrong with their eyes by the end. <laughs> that is interesting. So how did you get into research in particular? So I first started to think that I might want to go down the research route um, when I was at Aston University doing my undergrad and um, doing my dissertation in my third year and a lot of my friends really didn't enjoy the sort of 
that process and I really loved it and I just thought hmm maybe this sort of thing is for me in the future and from then onwards I always sort of just kept a kind of eye out online and in sort of you know magazines newsletters etc on sort of research that was going on and also research opportunities and um, I knew that I wanted to complete my pre-reg and I also knew that I wanted to do a few years in practice after my pre-reg but um, but a couple of years after yeah after that I sort of started seriously uh, looking at what was out there and I saw um, this PhD in the crab lab advertised and applied and the rest is history. Wonderful so as you mentioned there, you're working uh, with Professor David Crabb at the uh, wonderfully named Crabb Lab, where one presumes it's compulsory to walk sideways at all times. Um, what is that like? Obviously, it's quite renowned within the field. It's, you know, we know a few researchers in that lab, and it, it sounds interesting. What's it actually like to work with those people there? It's fantastic. Um, I think what's really, really special is that we've got people from a really wide range of disciplines, and we all work together on different projects. So we've all got our main interest in our main projects but then on each project you've got different people with different expertise who will look at a question in a different way and answer it in a different way uh, and anytime you've got sort of a question that you might not be able to answer there's always someone to talk to um, it's definitely sort of a um, kind of yeah it's a really kind of collaborative atmosphere um, and there's always sort of interesting discussions and conversations going on within the lab so are those sorts of other disciplines, things like engineering or ophthalmology, neurology, or other disciplines? Yes, yeah, um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, so all of those. So yeah. All of those. Um, so at the moment we've got um, yeah, engineering backgrounds, uh, statistics, maths, psychology, optometry of course, and sort of as people come and go you get sort of dis different disciplines coming in and out, um, but it's just sort of few um, that are represented at the moment. I think it is really good to stress yeah, how optometric research can sort of run the gamut from engineering to psychology really isn't it? It can cover so much of these things because it's about optics, it's also about perception, about the brain, all these sorts of things. It does sound very uh, interesting. Yeah we've heard great stories about fun times at the Crab Lab. Um, so can you briefly outline this particular project, so what particularly motivated you to get involved in this work? Did you sort of have a choice in the project you could have done or was this something that uh, you ended up doing uh, specifically because you wanted to do this project? So this project is what was sort of advertised as a job vacancy when I applied but I obviously chose to apply for it um, and the reason that I think it's particularly important is um, that people with, um, often people with dry AMD are sort of neglected and it's kind of kind of thought of as a well it's an afterthought really often in the sort of spectrum of eye diseases um, because there's no treatment people aren't sort of if they're seen in the hospital they're sort of discharged and kind of have don't have any kind of regular um, follow-up there as a result a lot of people end up not knowing about sort of what's out there in terms of you know things that um, services that might be able to help them where people with other eye conditions might not be. And in the research world, in the literature, it's also been fairly neglected and I think that possibly part of that is also as a result of it having potentially no treatment. Um, so can you briefly outline the purpose of this particular project and uh, the work that you undertook? Absolutely. So the purpose was to gain some kind of insight into the, um, the daily lives of 
people with dry AMD and ascertain sort of at what stage in the disease process different um, different aspects of daily life are are affected and to also find out a little bit more about people's visual symptoms in dry AMD and within all of that linking both of those to well as I said to um, AMD severity um, and also to, to a few sort of clinical measures like visual acuity and contrast sensitivity for example. And so in terms of the findings that you've got out of the project, obviously, completed now, Dr. Deanna Taylor, uh, very well done. There's a lot of stuff that came out of there, a lot of different papers and yes. things like that as well. So it covered uh, literature review, uh, did an experiment looking at visual search, self-reported description of vision loss, face recognition, lots of things happened there. Would you like to talk about any one particular part of that or any part that you thought was sort of interesting? All of it. <laughs> yeah, good. That's a what we would expect, isn't it? So if we were to take, say, initially, as you say, the point that you made about being neglected, it mm. seems remarkable that only 4% of studies focus solely on dry AMD, whereas mm. dry AMD comprises about 90% of diagnosed cases. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't necessarily assume that you have any understanding of why that is the case. That's just the state of the literature at the moment. As you say, maybe something to do with lack of treatments and, and things like that. But also within the literature itself, it didn't necessarily differentiate between types of AMD, is that correct? Absolutely. A sort of large proportion of the papers that we looked at either didn't specify at all or specified that they investigated people with both types but then didn't give any kind of breakdown of how many they saw of each and likewise any differentiation in the results between each kind. Mm -hmm. And then moving on to... Uh, the visual search experiment and, and the results from that. Would you like to talk a bit about that? Absolutely. Um, so in the visual search experiment, we showed people photographs of everyday scenes um, and asked people to find things within those scenes and we timed how long it took them to, um, to find those things. And that varied from, for example, searching for an item on a supermarket shelf or sort of looking for something on a map or trying to find uh, sort of you know, a restaurant on a high street, for example. And these are all things that we do do in our day-to-day -day lives, so visual searches. And they're a useful predictor for mobility performance, is that right, as well as sort of other daily yes. living Yes, so tasks. visual search is something that we do all the time anyway, and in, in itself is an important everyday task. But other research has shown it's a predictor for mobility uh, performance as well. Um, so, and then a quick summary of the results. Um, what we found was that... Um, if we split people up into early AMD, intermediate AMD and advanced dry AMD, so geographic atrophy, people with early AMD um, found things as quickly on average as people without AMD. People with intermediate AMD, there was sort of quite a, a wide variety there, so, um, so about half uh, performed similarly to, to people without AMD and half were worse than, than the people without AMD. And everyone that we tested with advanced dry AMD geographic atrophy had prolonged um, search times on average. And I think that that's quite important. So what we can take away from that is that um, it's perhaps less surprised, not so surprising that people with advanced dry AMD um, struggled, but the fact that people with intermediate AMD, and bear in mind that all of the people with AMD in the study, the average visual acuity was about 6'12", six, six so... Um, 
driving standard, and that includes everyone, early intermediate and geographic atrophy, and that the half of those people with intermediate AMD also struggle with visual search. So they're people who previously might not have been assumed to need much in the way of exactly. So functionally, but your research suggests that maybe they do. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, you make a really interesting point about intermediate and and the intermediate group really being polarised between two different halves. Yes. Is there any way you can predict who falls into which half in terms of the location of the, the damage or change or are there any markers that might make you think in practice, oh, actually, this person may be, may be more, their, their visual search may be more affected? That's not something we looked at in this um, study, but I definitely think there is something that okay. you know, should be looked at in the future, really. So from a practice point of view, even if someone appears to have quite good visual adherity, they it may be having a more profound effect than what you may anticipate yes. on the visions alone. Yeah, and I would say, yeah, anyone that um, that you see with, certainly with intermediate AMD, so sort of medium-sized drusen, really, you should be asking them about sort of how they're getting on with visual activities in their day-to-day lives because they might or might not be having problems, but you can't know if you don't ask. Yeah, so you obviously did work about that as well, self-reported description of vision loss. We'll come back to that in a second because there's a few other specific questions about that. But your other work about facial recognition, I think, Mm -hmm. is also interesting. There's a lot of uh, various uh, experiments going on in various labs around facial recognition, all sorts of the work around it, it being... um, quite a complicated uh, type of thing that involves all sorts of parts of the brain, all sorts of collections of information. So uh, would you like to talk a little bit about uh, your work in that area? Sure. Um, so what we found was that conversely to the, um, to the study we did in visual search in dry AMD, um, people with intermediate AMD on this task didn't seem to struggle. They and people with early AMD performed similarly to people without AMD, but people with advanced AMD, um, advanced dry AMD, did seem to struggle. And visual acuity and contrast sensitivity were both important for face recognition and within people with geographic atrophy, we found the size and the sort of proximity to the fovea were both important in terms of yeah, a person's ability to recognise faces on this particular face recognition task at least. So do we think that the uh, findings is saying something about the nature of AMD at these different stages or about the nature of facial recognition, possibly both? Possibly both. I don't think that this is just sort of my hunch because I think that I or someone else needs to do more research Yeah, yeah I mean hunches this. are good, hunches get but, started. Um, I don't think that people with intermediate AMD don't have a problem. I think that a lot of people do with intermediate AMD do um, do struggle with face recognition, um, and I think that possibly the sort of the nature of the methodology of our study just wasn't able to pick that up, and that could well have been related. For example, um, I think there's various things, but for example, the face recognition test that we use is supposed to simulate face recognition at about a metre away. And when you talk to people um, with AMD, it's sometimes sort of more that they don't recognise someone across the room or across the street, which is obviously a lot further than a metre away. Yes, that does sound very uh, interesting. I mean, it's uh, good that within what you've been able to look at there, the idea that people with intermediate AMD might need uh, more support from visual rehab, but in specific areas is, is, I think, what makes that quite interesting. So coming on to the self-reported description of visual loss, 
So obviously there was an interesting paper in OPO, shout out for OPO, uh, within um, about this work. And so could you tell us a bit about the results from that work? Sure. Um, so in this study, we kind of had two questions to ask, really. So first question is, do images that are sort of currently widely used to simulate vision loss in AMD reflect um, what the actual situation is and second of all I guess if they don't what what is the experience um, what are people's visual symptoms in dry AMD first thing that we did was we showed people a image that is widely used to simulate vision loss in dry AMD and we asked them to, to comment on how this ties in with their experiences we weren't able to ask all of our sample because sort of with the one side we had a couple of people that weren't able to see the image um, and on the other side we um, we had some people that from previous conversations with them we established that actually showing that, that that image might scare or concern them as to sort of thinking that's how their sort of vision might end up and that's something that we might want to talk right, about a bit yeah, later sure. on but amongst the people that we asked which was 21 and <laughs> um, only two of them said that that image was sort of representative of how their vision did look and I think the fact that two people did say that it, it was how representative of their vision is important because we know that for some people that is how they perceive their vision but equally important everyone else didn't feel that that was a good indication of their vision and we had three people who gave answers were sort of that were sort of on the fence and everyone else sort of quite clearly sort of indicated that no this um, this wasn't a good indication of their um, what their vision looks like so that's sort of the results from that our first question so the second question is what do people with dry AMDC then so we asked people to um, so to say sort of can you describe how your vision looks um, and sort of if you were talking to someone that doesn't have AMD how would you describe what's wrong or different about your vision and we had quite lengthy answers and um, these were transcribed and what we did was we highlighted words or phrases that described their vision and then we ended up with a, loads and loads of different words and phrases, but we realised that quite a few of them were kind of saying the same thing. So, for example, words like fuzzy and blurry are kind of synonyms of each other, but they are clearly not synonyms of um, things like distorted or... Um, or parts missing, for example. Um, so we um, we categorised sort of all of the words and phrases within to groups of descriptors, descriptor groups, and we identified a number of groups. So um, in order of frequency that people said them, um, we had blur, missing parts, distortion, double vision, difficulty with colours, shiny area or areas, dark, speckles smeary and bullseye and so there's a really really wide range of descriptors that people use to were many patients naming more than one of these yes and we looked at um, we looked at that we wanted to see if there were any kind of patterns within what people were saying so for example if someone described their vision as blurry did everyone who described their vision as blurry also describe having difficulty with colours, for example. So we looked at that and there was no pattern at all there. Wow. And I think that um, sort of really um, clearly 
shows that everybody's different. Mm. You can't um, you can't put everyone in the same um, everyone in the same box just because they've got dry AMD. Certainly, yeah. In terms of vision and perception, so much of this is subjective anyway. But obviously, yes. it's, it's very important to do work into that sort of thing. Yeah, we need to speak to patients anyway about what uh, literally it is that they're seeing. Yes. So um, I remember last year when I was reading your paper in OPO, it really made me sit up and think, oh my word, am I getting this wrong in practice in terms of, you know, a lot of people come into the consulting room may have a relative with AMD and they want to know more about it, they want to know what they might be experiencing or even what they might experience if they were to get AMD mm. in the future. And, and I know historically we've used these diagrams with kind of black patches missing and things. And and my, my reading of your research is actually saying that that these aren't particularly helpful. Mm. Do you have any suggestions to, to me and other optometrists about useful ways that we could describe the effects of vision of people affected by maybe intermediate or severe macular degeneration? Were there any particular words that came out as being particularly pertinent or useful that we could use? Yes, I mean, I think that the sort of, the kind of list of um, those descriptor, um, the words are all kind of things that, will be useful to um, to explain to people what vision might be like um, through the eyes of someone with AMD and I mean as we've kind of alluded to before I think it's if a relative is wanting to know more about their sort of loved one that has AMD I think the answer there is really encouraging that person to um, to talk about what they think their vision looks like because they're the um, they're the person that um, that actually has experienced it and I think that if you're sort of um, trying to explain to someone what they might um, experience then using all of those sort of descriptor words and really saying, you know, if you notice any changes in your vision, <laughs> as we're sort of always telling people anyway, to seek advice. Are there any words that you would recommend that we should definitely avoid using or that definitely weren't on the list? Ooh, that's a really interesting question and not something that I'd thought about. Um... Are there words that are typically used for other uh, conditions that you think wouldn't be the sort of thing to say about AMD or the tunnel vision springs to mind <laughs> but we also know now from research in our lab and elsewhere that glaucoma which is typically associated with tunnel vision doesn't necessarily cause tunnel vision sure. in the majority yeah. of patients yeah. as well yeah. so probably tunnel vision is not a good word to use in either of those conditions sure. yeah. And, and I, I know when I'm in practice, you know, lots of people go off home afterwards and they like Dr. Doodle and they like search things mm. online. And, and, and your review found that a lot of things that people look at online are really unhelpful and misleading. Is that correct? Certainly looking at, so we didn't do any kind of assessment of sort of patient literature websites, for example. And I know that's sort of another whole other area of research. So we just did a really simple um, kind of activity of um, just going onto Google Images and typing in um, vision age-related macular degeneration. And then we repeated it for uh, sort of a number of other phrases as well. So sort of what does vision in age-related macular degeneration look like? How will my vision look with age-related macular degeneration, etc., etc. And certainly what we found there was that the majority of images there were, were not helpful. Um, and yeah, to the contrary, they were these sort of typical images that we get that um, a photograph with a kind of black or grey splodge just sort of thrown on the centre. And would you say that's just unhelpful or would you say that's actually harmful in terms of worrying people unnecessarily? Yes, I think that it goes both ways. So um, it can worry people unnecessarily and equally um, you might find someone 
not going to um, to seek sort of optometric or medical advice if if they have a vision change because they might have seen this image related to macular degeneration and think, oh, it can't be macular degeneration because if I've got macular degeneration, my vision will look like that. So it's sort of on both ends of the spectrum, the mm-hmm. sort of people that, you know, might be worried and equally people that should be more worried, yeah. <laughs> maybe. So both the worried well on one hand and also the people who are kind of in denial that they need to seek, yeah. seek help. It's probably even more important to educate uh, optometrists about that, isn't it? Because it's not like the image is going anywhere you know once they're out in the internet it's presumably quite hard to uh, mm. to remove so the more uh, optometrists know these things are better yeah I, I mean would you say there's any sources where there are some good representations or good images online that optometrists could signpost patients or loved ones relatives to um well i've seen the college of optometrists <laughs> recent video <laughs> um uh, so in i mean in our paper we um recommend that things like videos or a series of images are um, likely to be a sort of much more useful and effective way of representing the sort of diversity of vision loss and and certainly the College of Optometrists video does do that. Um, Two shout outs now, we really do owe you a check for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's interesting, there's a, um, you've probably seen the the Macular Society's recent video and Mm. that's not specifically for AMD, it's kind of for macular disease as a whole. And I was looking on the YouTube page and underneath there's a sort of, you know, on YouTube there's sort of comments from um, sure. people that have watched it. And there's a lot of comments from people with, I think, various different types of macular de- disease and some of them saying, oh, this is nothing like my vision. And some of them are saying, yes, this is absolutely like my vision, which I kind of guess kind of yeah reiterates the point that everyone's different, really. So actually reading those comments could be quite useful for people in mm. Wales representation to actually get a... Uh, a very unscientific poll of YouTube responses as to yes. what people think about. Yeah, I mean, it's a sort of another area of research that's sort of growing, looking at analysing people's comments on internet, isn't it? You can download like Twitter comments and things, can't you? And then mm-hmm. analyse them qualitatively. Not something that we've done. And, and so where in practices we may have these like diagrams with black patches missing to represent macular degeneration, do you think we should just tear them up and get rid of them, stop using them altogether, or is there some place for them? I think that what we need to do where we've got static images is have a range of static images rather than just one. So, you know, if you've got some patient literature that's got, you know, one of these big images at the top, I think it. I think that that needs to be changed, really. Do you think videos rather than static images are better? I think that they are more likely to um, cover the whole range of sure. experiences someone with macular degeneration is likely to experience. Um, you know, if you've got one picture, it can represent one thing. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, it's not how people see, I suppose, is it just as a static image? Exactly, circuit? yes. And so, so I've been to these events where people wear goggles and they have they represent visual loss to give us a better feel for what it may be like if, if one were to be affected by an eye disease. And, and so are they still useful, do you think, or are they misleading? You know, these kind of goggles with, like, black patches painted on. It's interesting. I think as a kind of very s- simplistic introduction to eye disease, there's not necessarily anything wrong with them. But I do think that it needs to be clear that this isn't necessarily what people with the condition actually see. You know, it's a very sort of easy and and cheap way of simulating vision loss without having to, you know, make a, a video or a, mm-hmm. you know, like a 
virtual reality setup or anything like that. But there are, I mean, there are certainly issues with them. <laughs> so going back to your research on facial recognition, are there any quotes or anything that anyone described about what they're actually seeing when they're looking at faces? Um, yes, um, I mean, quite a few, um, quite a few participants in their sort of interviews alluded to to, um, to difficulties with face recognition, but one in particular that stands out, talking about faces, I'll read it out to you now. This participant um, was someone with advanced dry AMD with geographic atrophy in both eyes, and he said, if I look at your face, I cannot see it. Well, when I say I can't see it, my bullseye lets me see a little bit of detail, but not a lot of detail. I'm looking at you now and I can see your lips and I can see when your mouth is opening and closing, so to speak, but that's it. If I look at your forehead, I can't see your mouth. So, so that's really interesting. People aren't seeing a, a black patch in their vision. They're not seeing anything there. Mm. They're just getting this confusion. Yes. Yeah. So, so with your research that you've now carried out on dry macular degeneration, do you think it could be applied to other pathologies like glaucoma or diabetic retinopathy? Absolutely. A lot of the work that I did as part of my PhD was based on work that's already been done in glaucoma and I still think that more work needs to be done in that area on both glaucoma and dry AMD really and I think that there are a lot of eye diseases out there which are also neglected in that respect and haven't had a lot of focus on um, on how they actually impact on the patient's day-to-day -day lives. Which pathology might you tackle next? <laughs> uh, it's interesting you should ask that. Um, so I've recently started my postdoc um, in the crab lab and I'm looking at uh, diabetic retinopathy which um, which is something that there's heaps of research on um, you know it's and it's a very well-known condition but actually there's not much that's known about its impact on people's day-to-day -day lives from sort of objective me measures rather than patient reported outcome measures. So you've been presenting this work nationally internationally uh, what's that been like? Uh, fantastic. I think that, so, I mean, I really do believe that this kind of work is really important for educating people both sort of, you know, across, across the board, so researchers, clinicians and the public. And I think that for that reason, it's, you know, it's received very well when, um, when I present it. It's obviously fantastic to, um, to travel to different places, you know, places in this country that I've never been to and, and of course, abroad to, um, to present. So in terms of presenting internationally as well, um, the thing is with research conferences is that people can sometimes end up meeting someone whose work they've cited or some person they've been thinking about a lot, you know, in the field. And that can be sometimes a little bit intimidating. I think, have you had any experiences like that? Definitely. I've been starstruck at these events many a time. And obviously, as you sort of continue to research and write, you sort of go through sort of phases where you learn about, you know, another person's work. So I don't think that um, it certainly sort of hasn't slowed down for me. Obviously, I'm very early in my research career, career, but I do feel like every research conference that I go to, there's not necessarily different people going, but new people that I'm very excited to, to see and meet. Have you had any really tough questions from said luminaries? Hmm. The first time I went to Arvo was in Seattle in 2016 and I was presenting the work on face recognition and visual search and I can't remember any of the specific questions but, um, but what I do remember is that it was supposed to be a 10 minute presentation with 5 minutes for questions if I remember correctly. Either way, I finished 
quite a bit earlier than anticipated, but rather than still allotting you know, five minutes for question and then moving on to the next speaker, what that meant was that there was just more time for questions and I was really grilled. That full question amount of time for questions was used up. It was just sort of one after the other after the other. And it was the first time that I was sort of presenting at a big conference and it was incredibly intimidating, but I got through it. <laughs> well done, yeah. I mean, you can be the victim of your own success, can't you? People find your work really interesting, so you get a little queue of people at the mic to ask you questions. Mm. Yeah, at these conferences as well, they're so precisely timed that you know they want people to start at a certain times. so if there's they need to use it up with questions yeah. then that's what you get so well done Absolutely. but and uh, you know the quality of your work has obviously you know been indicated by the fact that you've uh, awarded the college's george giles postgraduate research prize one of our research excellence awards and also the worshipful company of spectacle makers's master's medal what are your memories of those days they were both really amazing days so if we start with the um, the worshipful company um awards lunch um, because that happened first chronologically it was held at apothecary the hall apothecary's sure. hall uh, yes i think yeah. that's it yeah. yeah um another slightly tricky word to say yes uh, which is this fantastic building with these incredible beautiful rooms with gorgeous sort of artwork and then um sort of cabinets with old apothecary's equipment and uh -huh. um, so just walking in was amazing and then there was a sort of a lunch which was very kind of very traditional very sort of grand grand very grand yeah. and spoke to some amazing people everyone had sort of really interesting and lovely questions were there other people getting awards on that day yes there was um someone else getting an award mm -hmm. and the college's diploma ceremony have you been to the diploma ceremony before Did yes you, i went to the yeah. diploma ceremony when i uh, finished my pre yeah. um, so it was really nice to go back and to take my parents back as well oh, brilliant. and it was lovely because the people that were actually getting their diploma yes. um were people that i'd then taught at City as well, some of them. So as well as going and meeting the other people, winning prizes and sort of speaking to some very inspirational people, um, I was also able to sort of go through this milestone with the, um, the students that I taught. Yeah, I think it's a great taught. ceremony in that regard. You've got people receiving all sorts of awards from, you know, graduating to lifetime sort of fellowship mm -hmm. and people at all stages of their career, all on the same day. It's always a good... Uh, graduation ceremony where people feel like they're all in it together. So there was some other work which covered the sort of self-reported experience of vision loss. Yes, absolutely. So um, one of the experiments that we conducted, which we haven't published as a paper yet, but we have um, presented it at various different conferences, involved showing participants videos taken from the point of view of um, someone walking through various different real-world scenarios and asking them to press down on a button to indicate scenes that would make them feel anxious or uncomfortable in their day-to-day -day lives. And we measured pressure on this button sort of throughout these videos. And what we found there was that overall, people with early AMD and without AMD didn't report particularly high levels of anxiety or concern related to, um, to walking around. People with intermediate AMD and geographic atrophy reported higher levels of anxiety related to mobility overall. And when we sort of looked in a bit more detail into what specific situations were causing these sort of differences in anxiety related to mobility compared to, um, to people with 
um, early AMD and without AMD. These situations seem to predominantly involve either low lumen situations and going up and down stairs. I guess there's kind of two takeaway messages from that. So first of all, um, again, coming back to what we talked about when we were talking about the visual search study, that people with intermediate AMD for this reported kind of equal measures of anxiety compared to people with geographic atrophy. So again, we've got a situation where um, these people who might be assumed to be not struggling with their vision may well be um, sort of perceiving quite significant problems with their vision. And um, and that's then the second thing that we can take away is that it was these particular scenarios that were most problematic, low luminance situations and, um, and navigating stairs. Uh, Which would be good in giving rehab officers specifics to work with someone to know maybe what they're struggling with and how they can help in those areas. Absolutely, yes. Okay, was there anything else? I don't think so. Okay. Can I quickly ask just, just a question in terms of, just for a broader interest thing, mm-hmm. in terms of your research, do you spend time in practice now at the moment? Yes. So, so how do you manage that, research and practice? And um, So at the moment, right now, I'm doing four days a week, every week, in city, um, yeah. in research, and... Then I work in practice on weekends. Um, so you're doing a six-day week, or no? It's the kind of. I'm working. I'm only working one weekend day, two weekends a month. Okay. So two days in practice okay. a month. Um, and, and do you like that mix? Is it quite I rewarding? Do. From yes. that? Would you ever want to give up the clinical side of things? Not really. No, I think I don't know what's going to happen in the future, and it may well be that you know time limitations always an issue. <laughs> but I mean, right now I'm. I really enjoy my clinical work and definitely want to continue it for as long as I can. Uh, so thank you very much, Dr. Deanna Taylor, for coming in today to talk to us about your work. Thank you for inviting me. So thanks very much to Deanna. Uh, if you want to read more about her research, then please follow the hyperlink below. There's also the Through My Eyes video on macular degeneration that members can download and embed on their websites so um, people can view uh, an appropriate simulation of what it may be like to be affected by macular degeneration. And thank you very much for listening.